quickly, uh, let us now take a moment to dive into God's Word. Uh, Psalm uh, chapter 39, and for those of you using the Pew Bible, that would be page 554. Psalm 39, I said I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. If you are the one who has done this, remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. Your rebuke and discipline men, you rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, as a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again, before I depart and am no more. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Well, I feel like starting off with a question I heard Camille ask the LifeWise kids. Was David having a good day or a bad day when he wrote this song? This is kind of a bad day psalm. Well, the, uh, there's a, a, moment, a, a moment that I, I remember as, as kind of a, a turning point in my own emotional life re- reality. It was in the first couple years of marriage, and I was in seminary. I was working at a church. I was deep into doctrine and theology, uh, studying the Bible with a lot of my hours. And, uh, but then I was newly married, and uh, the first two years of our marriage was, was super tough. Uh, it, was, it was a very tough go for us. A lot of, we were both oldest children. Uh, which, you know, that, that's a lot to come together in a marriage and stuff like that, plus a lot of other things. And I remember there was a moment uh, I was, I was uh, with, there was an older couple in the church that was kind of walking with us uh, through this, this hard season. And there's a moment I was at this, this, this pub called Richo's down in New Albany, Indiana with, with Cliff. And um, he was just talking to me about my anger. And I was like, no, what? No, I'm not angry. It was, it was like years, uh, about a year into marriage, like, I'm not angry. I don't know where, why is everybody telling me I'm angry? <laughs> and it, it, I just would not admit that I was angry. And he's like, because that's how we experience you. You're like radiating anger. Like, no, 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 I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. And he's like, Josh, you're angry. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just frustrated. He's like, okay, tell me what you're frustrated about. And I just started sharing some of, the, some of the things that I, was, that I was burdened by, that I was not angry about. And, uh, and, and what happened was I just started crying right there in Richos. I was angry, but I didn't feel safe enough to acknowledge it as anger. And then, pro tip, anger is almost always a surface emotion for either fear or sadness. And there was just this well of sadness. As I, I started unpacking this to him, and then he heard me and said, Josh, that sounds so sad. 
that would have to, that, if, that, if I were you, that would make me so, so sad. And it was just like a wake-up call. It's like, oh, I've been floating through life on this, this ocean, this well of sadness that I didn't even know about it. You know, for all my, like, doctrine, for all my, like, wanting to plant a church and do great things for God, for all my, you know, church activity, uh, I, I was out of touch with what was going on underneath uh, in my heart. I tell that story because today as we journey through the Psalms, the, the idea of emotion is kind of one of the, the main things we're going to look at. As we look at the Psalms, we're looking at praying the Psalms, and by praying the Psalms, allowing Scripture to help us pray our emotions. Kind of the, the main idea for the series uh, uh, through the Psalms, if you will, uh, is, is what Pastor Pete Scazzaro says, which is that you can't be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That's from his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, which I would recommend to you. But I remember hearing this line and reading this book around this time, and I was just like, you don't understand how much theology I know. You don't understand how good I am at articulating my doctrinal convictions, uh, but none of that would help me in this, this sadness I felt in my marriage, in my un- inability to deal with it in healthy ways and have it come out as anger and all the ways that affected my marriage. And so this connection between spiritual maturity and emotional maturity is something I hope we make, that we see the Bible making. This is not just like my idea as some millennial hipster talking about self-care. Like the Bible makes this connection between emotional health, emotional maturity, and spiritual maturity. And I think this follows if you think about uh, what the Bible tells us to do and be, which is to become like Jesus, or to become the kind of people where we see the fruit of the Spirit start to, to be produced in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. All, some of those are emotions, and, and uh, almost all of the fruit of the Spirit have emotional components. But there's this, this tricky thing that I think can happen when we talk about fruit of the Spirit is that we start to think that, you know, they're, they're the fruit of Josh or the fruit of Stan or Sharon. You know, they're not. They're not something that we produce. They're the fruit of the Spirit. But when we think it's the fruit of me, something that I should be, then we, we can kind of like deny or repress or ignore, kind of shove into an, a closet in our hearts all the emotions that don't line up to that because uh, we don't feel the freedom to, to bring those things out. And what I hope the Psalms will show us through this series is that if we pray according to scripture, that if we pray according to the Bible, biblical prayer invites us to emotional health. But how can this be? Well, that brings us to the the main idea for our psalm today, uh, this David having a bad day, which is that emotions require grace. Moving forward, we're going to look at psalms that I think address specific emotions and what, and what it teaches us about how to pray to God, those specific emotions. Uh, but today, there's kind of a whole mess of emotions in this psalm that uh, Jeff just read for us. And what I want us to see is that emotions require grace. I was sitting around a campfire a few years ago with uh, another family, and this other family had a little girl who was four at the time, and we're roasting hot dogs over the, the fire, and the dog falls off the stick, you know, catches on fire, and uh, this four-year-old girl just flops on the ground, you know, total meltdown, and in, in, in soul-crushing despair for this hot dog that was gone. And her, her mom, 
was, was compassionate and picked her up and said, it's okay, baby, we'll, we can go get a new, a new hot dog and carries her into the house to get a new hot dog. And I'm, I, I'm sitting there next to the fire watching them go with the girl's dad who was, you know, the strong silent type. Like he was a contractor, he liked to hunt and fish, uh, a man of few words. And so uh, he's just watching his wife and his daughter go get a new hot dog and, and he says, man, I wish I could feel emotions like that and get comforted. It felt like such a holy moment. You know, this, this strong, you know, silent, just hammer stuff and, you know, drink a beer kind of guy being like, wow, I haven't accessed my emotions like that in forever. And, and if I did, I don't know if I would be comforted with that level of compassion. But kids are a great example for what we're talking about today, which is that they share emotions freely without any guilt, shame, or condemnation, uh, and they presume on the love of their parents to get comforted. And, and you know, I, theoretically, and not all families, you know, are, are healthy or whatever, uh, but if kids can feel emotions and be heard, be felt, be comforted in them, and corrected, like, you know, the response, you know, all emotions can or are okay, it's just the question of, like, how do we respond to them, you know, like you can be angry, you can't throw a, a toy at your siblings, speaking for someone else's kids, of course, and, uh, and, but that is what we are talking about today, like how can we as God's children, yet grown-ups, you know, in the world, feel emotions uh, that, like that rawly and, um, and, and be comforted. To map this onto the gospel, there's a, feeling our emotions and experience comfort from God is, is, is one of the most cl- the clear ways that we live the gospel. We experience the, the, the gospel, not just as like a mental thing we, you know, we agree to. Yep, I agree with that. If it, thinking about the story of the gospel, which is that uh, God made us for a perfect relationship with him, walking together. Humans have sinned, fallen short, but we don't, we're cut off from God, we deserve punishment, but then we turn from that, we believe in Jesus' work on the cross, and we're forgiven. Now, if we stop there, emotional health, according to the Bible, is very difficult. We stop with just like we're forgiven. We're no longer under punishment, which is true. Yes and amen. Praise God for Jesus' justifying work. But we miss out on why Jesus died for us, why Jesus purchased us us forgiveness, which is to adopt us into God's family. It's such a huge difference to be in a courtroom, being guilty, and being, being forgiven of your crime and then being forgiven of your crime and invited into the house where there's a seat for you at the table and people are glad to have you there and they wanna know you and experience life with you. That's the good news of the gospel. And so expressing our emotions to God is one of the, one of the most powerful ways we can get the concept of grace, the theology, the doctrine of grace that probably most of us here would, would mentally give the thumbs up to, like we agree, you know, we, we get what we don't deserve, you know, because of Jesus' work, but it is in the, the rhythms, the nitty-gritty of praying our raw emotions to God that I believe grace can, can move, make that somewhat impossible journey from the head down to our hearts. Emotions require grace. That's what we're, we're looking at in Psalm 39, and I picked Psalm 39 uh, because because it's kind of one of the hardest ones in all of the psalms. There's 150 psalms 
and you can, you can find a lot of patterns in, in ways that God's people have prayed and what's in the Psalms. But Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 are, are kind of outliers, and I find this so profound. I think this is just beautiful and profound. We have 150 Psalms, but two out of 150 are a mess. Don't follow the normal patterns. There's you know, a normal pattern of like who God is and who we believe him to be, and then we pour out our feelings and complaints, and then we, and then we confess our belief you know, of who God is, of the truth in the midst of our feelings. That's a beautiful pattern that you see in a lot of Psalms that we'll get into. Uh, but Psalm 39 doesn't do that. Psalm 39 is kind of like starts in the pit and kind of goes, Ugh, and then just and then just crashes, and then, and then that's it. No amen, no bow tied on the emotions. It's just a mess. And the, the, the beauty is that there's two of those. There's two psalms like that in, in, in the prayer book of God's people, which I think is profound. Like, it, it is allowed. It's permissible. It's part of, of life. It's part of praying your emotions honestly. Uh, but it's only two out of 150 parts, if, if you will. Like, it shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be the pattern. So we wanted to start with, with a hard one because the only way that this makes sense, the only like way this could be in the you know the the authoritative scriptures is if grace is real, if David, uh, along with us, can come to God like that little girl who dropped her hot dog in the fire. David wrote this psalm, uh, and I want to spend a minute talking about David because he wrote he wrote seventy three out of, uh, at least 73 are attributed to him. He might have even wrote more that don't have his name on it. 73 out of 150 psalms were written by David, known as the man after God's own heart. I remember discipling a, a young 20-something guy who, you know, desperately wanted to be married but couldn't put his video games down. It was just like caught in that vortex. And, and uh, he's just, I just wish I was more emotionally stable like King David. And I was like, have you read King David? King David has given us probably the best lines in all of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. These incredible lines that he gives us. And then he also gives us this one. He also gives us this, which is leave me alone so I can die in peace. And this shows us what it's like to be a person after God's own heart. So we're just going to walk through Psalm 39 here and track. We're going to try to follow some of the moves, but honestly, this psalm, like when you parse it through, it's just a big soup. It's just a mess of emotions. There's faith in there, and then there's like despair and doubt, and it's not, there's like theologically incorrect parts in there, whatever. It's just like not like a neat, tidy thing, Uh, but it does show us uh, what, what the freedom to which we can bring our emotions to God. So, look at, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39, starting verse 1. The first three uh, verses here, we see David um, trying to hold it together. We see David's strategies for trying to, to not express his emotion. Verse 1 says, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So we see David's strategies here. Uh, the first strategy is, is that he's going to put a muzzle on his mouth. He's going to stuff it. He's not going to express the emotions. I, don't, I, I am a mess right now. Like There's some emotional lava in there, and I don't want to sin. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to keep it repressed. Now, it is, of course, good to, to be careful and not sin. 
A lot of times we do sin in our emotions. We respond to okay emotions and not okay ways. <clears throat> but the reality is that stuffing uh, just n- never works over the long run. We, at, the, at the risk of like trying to do it right, we will not be honest with God. And what happens to lava when it's just squashed down, emotional or otherwise? It eventually becomes a volcano and goes everywhere out of control. The next strategy that David has is performance. While in the presence, I put a muzzle on my mouth while I'm in the presence of the wicked. Like I don't want my emotions to make me look bad in front of these fools. I, I gotta hold it together and be the, be the, be the grown up, be the whatever, and I, I can't look messy, so I'm gonna try to perform. Like keep a happy face, happy clappy, everything's fine, everything's fine, what'd you think of the game? And, not, and, and keep a appearance or performance up. But how does that work for David? So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good, but my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. This shows us the reality of emotions, which is that they'll find a way out. The counselor that Camille and I were seeing during those first two years, he would tell us this a lot. The heart will find a way out. The heart always finds a way out. We don't have any, like, you know, timeline here in these first few verses. Like, how long was David muzzling his his mouth? Like, how long was he being utterly silent, holding it all in, stuffing and performing? We don't know. But humans can go a long time. Maybe you've gone a long time, like decades, uh, of just trying to hold it together and just trying to perform and and present what you think you're supposed to present, what a church person or Christian is supposed to be. But I think we see here the anguish increases and eventually it comes out, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. But the beauty of this psalm, even as the fire burns and there's the explosion, is who does he explode on? You can say it. Who does he explode his emotions to? God, that's right. He bursts into the emotional uh, lava and he says in verse four, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. So what we see here is David in the depths of despair. When he says, there's, there's a uh, trusting, like, positive way to say, you know, show me the number of my days. Psalm 90 does that. Give me a heart of wisdom. And show me, teach me the number of my days so that I have a heart of wisdom. Like, there's some wisdom that comes in knowing that none of us are going to live forever. But this is different. <laughs> this is like when my daughter, who doesn't like to eat any food, Ruby's our picky eater, she's like, Dad, how many more bites do I have to take? It's like delicious food that, you know, we, that she ate great the last time we ate it. You know, like, how many more bites do I have to take? This is David saying, like, I don't want to be alive. Tell me how long this miserable existence is going to continue so that I, I, can, I, I can know that, like, my life is terrible, but at least it's fleeting. The despair is in the, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated fleeting or everyone is but a breath is the same Hebrew word that we see in Ecclesiastes for vanity, meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, meaningless. 
It's that same kind of despair. Every, nothing matters. Every, everything is just a, a breath before you. Everyone's rushing around doing all this stuff uh, for no reason. You ever felt like that? It was just like everything seems pointless. Everything seems like there's no, you just don't want to be around for any of it. David begins kind of wrestling. It's a beautiful picture of faith here in verse seven. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Verse eight, save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I was silent. I would not open my mouth for you are the one who, does, who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. When you, you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume like a, their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. So this passage here is, is, is a mess. Like reading commentators, there's like, there's, there, there are conflicting emotions at work in David. Like, thank you, commentators. Yeah. Like, they, this is not something that you can find like a, like a secret, you know, code and crack, and it all makes perfect theological sense. This is David as a man after God's own heart, just like grappling with his circumstances. And the, and the unique thing we see here about David grappling here is that he's acknowledging that, that all his, his trouble, his pain is, is from who? It's from God. You have done it. I'm overwhelmed by the blows of your hand. We have other Psalms of David where he's lamenting, you know, wicked people and other circumstances, kind of like horizontal level, but here he's looking at God and it's like, I am crushed. One commentator said, save me from the, the crushing severity of God. It's a category we don't really have in, in modern, you know, I don't know, church or whatever, that uh, the, the severe mercy of God but we see here that there's something going on in David where he, he's aware of his transgressions and that there is a rebuke and discipline coming from God. Which just to, to root this into the, the broader teachings of Scripture, David is, I think, looking forward to what Hebrews 12 says in Hebrews 12, uh, 7 through 11. Let me read it here as it brings in kind of the emotions or grace idea. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines, for, disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Here we see David <clears throat> coming to his father, aware of some level of discipline that it's partially his fault, that the experiences that he's suffering through are the result of God's discipline. It's so much easier as a parent to not do discipline. Can I get amen? Like it's so much easier to just like send them to the basement to watch a show uh, rather than to make them unhappy, to, to not be the, you know, the good cop or, or whatever. It is, but it is a fatherly love. It is a grace. It is a mercy. It is a gift 
to engage with your kids to the point that they're upset. But what we see here in the relationship with God that David's de- de- David is demonstrating is that it is in this beautiful, trusting, safe place where even as he's experiencing discipline that he sees coming from the hand of God, he feels free to beg God for it to stop and to rail against it, to tell God how much he hates it, how much he hates the discipline. It's a beautiful picture of how God wants to parent us. And it shows that David feels safe with God. This idea of safety and emotional health is so huge. In order to to really let emotions out, to share them, you have to feel safe with the one that you're sharing them with. I was, I'm reading a book where uh, there's a, two characters that were married and they're separated because of the husband's uh, addiction, drug addiction, and, and the, the surrounding lies. They have teenage kids, and the daughter of this couple is just uh, ruthless towards the mom uh, who finally separated after all this like abuse and lies and, 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 and all that stuff, and, uh, and she's just like despairing, like, I'm not the drug addict. I'm like the one that's held it together for 20 years. Like, what, you know, what is happening? Because the daughter's so like gracious and supportive and kind and, you know, and just you know, to, to, the, uh, to, the, to her father. And then finally, a woman's friend says, you know why she does that? Because you're the safe parent. She knows no matter what she says to you, no matter how she comes at you, no matter how honest she is, like you are always going to be there and you're always gonna love her. Her father isn't safe. She's dancing, she's performing, trying to like keep, you know, be around her dad so that he won't use again or so that he won't leave again. But you're the safe parent and she can pour that out to you. God is the safe parent. We see David demonstrating that God is the safe parent. Look at David's big finish, verse 12 and 13, kind of summarize the, 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 the mess of emotions. Verse 12, hear my prayer, Lord, listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner and a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. So you see the desperation, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for help, like I need something here. And then he's just like, leave me alone. Actually, you know what? I just, leave, just, I just wanna be happy. Can I just like watch a show and eat a pizza and just go to bed and just be happy until I die? Look away that I may enjoy life once again. This is the same man who prayed, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Psalm 16, here he is just like, let me enjoy life apart from you. It shows us the mess of emotions. And here's what Psalm 39 is saying. Here's what I believe God is saying to us by including Psalm 39 in his scriptures. Is that you can come to me with your unprocessed, pre-reflective, unpolished thoughts and feelings. You can come to me with your raw, unbridled emotion. You You can pray theologically incorrect prayers. I'm your father and I love you and I can take it. This is the, the love of God for us in the gospel, is that we can come with the mess and hold it before him, beat our fists against our Father's chest because he loves us no matter what. He loves us not because of how we feel or what we do or anything like that, but because we are his children adopted and covered in Jesus' righteousness. 
So what does it feel like? What does it sound like to bring your pre-reflective, pre-unprocessed, raw emotion to God? Well, let's talk about how we can do this. What are a couple things we could step into? Uh, The the other two things on your prayer plan uh, are are meant to be tools to help help you step into the grace of sharing your emotions with God. Uh, The the first thing... uh, I'm going to do it out of order. Number three is to take an emotional health assessment. And this is an assessment that shows whether you are an emotional infant, child, or adolescent, or adult. Uh, so just be pre- prepared to find some areas of your life where you might be a child or even an infant. Uh, th- this is what I'm saying. Like it takes, it takes grace to be able to look honestly at where we're at emotionally. So I invite you to do that. It's not, you know, it's not an errand, it's not the Bible, it's just a helpful, helpful data point you know, on your journey to becoming spiritually and emotionally mature. It's at emotionallyhealthy.org. The details are also in your, in your uh, prayer plan that you got on the way in. Um, fill that out, maybe talk about it with your spouse or a brother and sister, see what, see what comes up. Knowing that even if you're a total infant, across the board in every category or whatever, your father is excited to hold you. Infants get a lot of nuzzles and care and tenderness and compassion. And infants get a lot of understanding. It's easy to be patient and considerate with an infant. And then the, the second invitation on the, the, the prayer plan uh, for praying the Psalms is to do Lectio Divina, the P-R-A-Y style that we talked about during our 21 days of prayer. Uh, pick a time and a place to do it. And the, the acronym P-R-A-Y uh, stands for pause, and this is a great space to practice your, your uh, articulating your emotions to God. Uh, before you get into anything, stop, maybe have a journal, and, and just co- turn your heart and mind to God, your Father who's looking at you in love, and tell him what you're feeling. God, I'm so stressed right now. I'm so preoccupied by this thing that this guy said, or I, I, can't, I can't let my grand, what my grandkid is doing go. I feel so messed up about that. I feel. And we even have on our book table a, a sheet printed out, a list of emotions. It could be really powerful to just like name an emotion. You don't have to process, like, process it or understand it perfectly. Like, God, this word sounds true. I think this is what I'm feeling. And then pray the scriptures. That's what Lectio Divina means. Divine reading, which is a way to pray the scriptures, not to wrestle with it or analyze it or anything like that, but just to let it, let it analyze you, read you. And so you read and reflect, I encourage you to re- read and reflect on one of the Psalms of the day, read it several times out loud, uh, jot down phrases or words that stick out to you and, and hold them before God. God, why, why did this verse stick out to me? What are you showing me about that? And it could be even helpful to have touch points with God throughout the day. You know, there's five psalms of the day. Instructions are in the plan. You read one in the morning, uh, one mid-morning, lunch, dinner, d- bedtime, something like that. And then ask, what, God, what do you want to say to me through the psalm? Let your Father speak to you about your emotions, about what you're reading. See what he would say. And then the why is yield. Just say, okay to whatever God has spoken. Maybe that's action. Maybe it's to go make a huge life change. Or maybe it's just to accept that he's running the universe and that your job is to go, you know, change a diaper or some other, you know, just normal task and let God be God. There's not a silver bullet. Lectio Divina is something that could, like, you know, infiltrate our days over the decades of our lives. And, and over time, it, it builds that kind of intimacy where we can share our hearts, raw, unprocessed emotion 
with God. Well, we had a, a foster son years ago uh, named DeMarco, and uh, he, he was 18. It was technically supposed to be semi-independent living situation. Uh, that's what they told us, but it, but it wasn't. Because he was 18, but he was probably like an eight-year-old trapped in a six-foot-two, 18-year-old man's body. And uh, it was just, and he had, you know, been neglected until he went into a group home at 12 and then was there for six years, I guess, and, until he came to us. So he'd never really been in a home except for his birth home and a group home. And, uh, and he, he was a super sweet kid. Like, he was just so fun to be around. And he really was just like a fun eight-year-old boy most of the time. But the poor kid had just never had any emotional connection. And he had no idea what to do when his emotions erupted and uh and he would you know run away or you know start to get kind of violent or, or whatever when the emotions uh, erupted and there was one moment it was one of the sweetest moments that we had uh with him uh where he erupted and stormed out of the house and sometimes he would stay around whereas other times he'd like go really far away and so we're like where is he where is he and we find him he's in the backyard uh stomping around our backyard uh punching trees bare knuckled, just like, just like stomping around, punching, walking around, punching trees. And, and Camille and I are standing there by the back door, and, you know, we had been, the, the protocol from the caseworkers, like, if he runs away or gets violent, you know, you call the police. Um, <clears throat> we got to be on a very close relationship with the police in that season of life. And so we're, we don't want to do it. I mean, it freaked him out. It felt like it escalated. You know, we didn't want to do it. And we're like, man, please stop doing that. Like, how can we, uh, how can we help you? We don't want to call the police. And he just, like, kept punching trees. And we're like, we're going to call the police now. And he turned and looked at us and said, instead of calling police, why don't you come give me a hug? Are you serious? I would love to do that. And I walk down the steps, walk over to him. He's just kind of, like, standing there hulking next to a tree, and I wrap my arms around him, and he just starts weeping. And just let me hug him for five minutes. Like, Come into the house, man. And then Camille sees his bloody knuckles and said, can I bandage your hands? And so big, hulking DeMarco sits there while Camille bandaged his hands, and you could just see like, it was one of those moments, it's so rare in foster care, where the, the love is actually starting to get in a little bit. Like, he's just, like, looking around, like, what is this? What is this? But, friends, this is what God invites us to, to, to leave punching trees on our own and come into the Father's embrace. Come and weep into the crook of his neck because he loves you. This is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray. Oh, Father, how can it be that you take people who were your enemies, who rejected you, who created destruction by trying to do things on our own, and invite us to be around the table, invite us to your loving embrace? Father, emotions are, are very serious. Uh, they're very tender spaces. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in all of our hearts that you'd bring up a memory that maybe we've locked in a closet for years that you want to address and heal uh, with your tender love. Father, I just acknowledge the limits of what, what a teaching, what a Sunday morning teaching can do, so I pray that you would draw these folks to your presence this week, that there'd be, there'd be moments of tenderness, moments of journaling out their raw, un unprocessed emotions to you.
They would feel the freedom of, of not having to pray right, uh, but instead just praying honestly, whatever, whatever feels right and true, and know that you can sort it out. Holy Spirit, would you be our comforter this week in this series as we open the door to some emotions? And Father, may we be people who are spiritually mature and, and display the fruit of the Spirit are also emotionally mature. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for this good news that calls, calls us your children. Uh, would, you, would you continue the work of adoption that you began in us for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.